Welcome back to another episode of the Softly Die Living podcast. This week, we have been talking to Griff of Combat Flip Flops, and I think there isn't a topic of discussion that we didn't touch on. We went through what is going on with Combat Flip Flops currently, what's going to be happening with them, Griff's time in the Ranger Regiment, what happened with his experiences in Afghanistan, both as a soldier and as a businessman, current political ideology, what is going on with foreign policy, and pretty much just about everything else under the sun. So join us as we introduce Griff from Combat Flip Flops, who I am proud to say is one of our smartest and most eloquently stated business friends. Broadcasting from everywhere and nowhere, the Misfit Crew at Southfleet HQ is proud to bring you the Die Living Podcast. All right, so Griff, um, let's just rewind it a little bit. Welcome um, to Between Two Ferns. Griff, can you, can you tell me a little bit more about your time in Ranger Regiment, kind of, you know, what you saw while you were deployed and, and how that led you to want to and then actually, you know, go through with starting combat flip-flops? Yeah, so um, I was uh, an artillery guy. So oddly enough, I wasn't even infantry and I was in Ranger Battalion. Griff was a real so gun I, bunny. Yeah, I was a real gun bunny. I need the shirt now, I'm, but like I'm, with, a, with a real size gun on it. I'm stolen like valor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's, I, I, I graduated. I, I like doing math. Um, I liked artillery. I like the title King of Battle versus the Queen of Battle, and everything about artillery seemed to appeal to me. And uh, You went to West in, Point, right? I did, yeah. When I was a junior in West Point, I got to go to 82nd Airborne. I got to jump out of airplanes and shoot artillery, and I thought that was a really good idea in the way I wanted to spend my, my life. So I... Went to officer basic course, and when I was there, the former regimental fire support officer was there, and he brought all the the pre ranger guys under his wing, and he said, "Hey, if you guys are going to go into the army, like this is the best job in the army. It's a ranger company fire support officer. Like you get all the big toys, and it's rad. You get to go on all, all the cool missions." And I said, "Well, that sounds like what I want to do." So I went to my first conventional unit here, Fort Lewis, and then I applied to Second Ranger Battalion, and got there in July of 2003, and then deployed to Afghanistan, which was Operation Winter Strike, which is a very famous deployment in the Ranger Regiment, because it's one of the only two times in history the entire regiment is deployed in a surge altogether. Um, and then we suffered miserably there. We, you know, went to the Kunar province, uh, past the Korongal Valley and up in the mountains, and we lived in villages and hung out there for a couple months in the middle of winter, uh, chasing bad guys through the mountains. And uh, we got to witness poverty at epic levels. Um, lack of opportunity. We got to see illiterate everybody, um, polio, disease, everything. And you know, when he was at the point where they're killing sheep on our doorsteps for dinner at night for the platoons. And it was, it was a pretty crazy experience. And it, it really changed my mindset on what I thought we were going to be fighting in Afghanistan versus, you know, Al Qaeda terrorists that hated America. It was really a narco finance insurgency um, among a whole bunch of people who really didn't have any opportunity for anything else. So uh, I did. Uh, I mean, did you? Deployments. 
Did you uh, take any, like, I mean, when you say it's a narco-finance insurgency, like, I totally agree with you. Um, but I, like, did you see any parallels between, like, that and the narco-finance uh, insurgency in, say, like, Colombia or anything? Like, do you take away any lessons while you were there, things that you thought would, like, help remedy the situation? So we'll, we'll get to that here in a second yes. when we talk about our productions. So uh, everybody hang on to that one. Listen to the podcast. <laughs> Drag your feet. Don't. Don't hang up. Don't switch to another podcast. Um, <laughs> version so 2.0. Uh, <laughs> version 2.0, yeah. So, so I did three deployments to Afghanistan. Um, so that was Kunar province. Next one was Kaos. Third one was TST out of Bagram. And then uh, we did our deployment to Mosul in um, 2005. And, you know, throughout this process, I had two girls. My wife was in as well. And we were, we were kind of tapped. Uh, it was either transfer to infantry, transfer to special forces, or go back to artillery. And all of those options really sounded exhausting and not what we had really thought we were going to be doing um, for our lives. And my wife and I decided to get out and you know transition and get back in other ways. And I did what most special operations veterans do. I took the first job offered to me and you know bounced through a lot of work. I uh, drank a lot, tried to find my my place. Um, you know, bounced off bottom uh, two or three times, and then you know ended up going to work for a medical company in Seattle, and they. We're putting clinics and doing medical evacuation all over the world. And I started traveling back to Africa, Afghanistan, Middle East, and it changed my perspective on how we should be fighting uh, an insurgency. And I believe it's through business. Yeah. Long story short. Go ahead. ahead. No, no, long story short is I ended up in a a combat boot factory in Kabul, Afghanistan, and witnessed a whole bunch of people working and it was super inspiring. And I asked the factory manager what they were going to do when the war ends. And he, without skipping a beat, says, oh, yeah, we're going to just shut it down. Nobody's going to want to buy anything in Afghanistan. So we were knowingly going to repeat the mistakes we had made in the 80s that led to the rise of the Taliban and Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. And uh, I went from inspiration to fury. And then I looked at my half left on this table, and there was a combat boot sole with a flip-flop thong punched through it. And it was that, you know, that light bulb moment you see in movies. Bing! That was it. And combat and flip-flops, you know, two things that, just don't go together. And then the juxtaposition of the words uh, and the fact that it was made to combat boot factory, all these things were going together. And I just picked it up and I asked the factory manager, I said, Hey, do you mind if I run with this? He says, yeah, sure. So I put it down and I walked right out of the factory and I got in my Toyota and I drove back to my crappy Afghan hotel and called my ranger buddy, Donald Lee. It was like two o'clock in the morning in LA and like a good ranger buddy. And he picks up the phone and I said, Hey man, we're going to make flip-flops in Afghanistan groggily he says yeah yeah sure whatever register the domain name in the morning and he hangs up and that's how we started combat flip-flops dude that's so awesome um and honestly i think the message that you guys are preaching is is so good but also so complex on some level you know it's not just black and white uh and so much of what we're seeing today you know is you're it's so digital right it's like one or zero you're either on the left side or on the right side or on this side or that side and you guys are are really preaching this kind of more complex in my opinion like thought-provoking message uh that asks people to think a little bit more critically about like what's going on um i know you know we've kind of talked about this before but you guys have people that kind of come and attack you on facebook as being sellouts to the military um 
or if you lo- if the, you like Afghanis, you must hate America. Yeah, you know, exactly. Like, you it's know, like, like, like this incongruous <clears throat> connection that people think is so clear, and you're like, um, how is treating people like humans a bad thing? Like, yeah, in a but in a world of you know thirty second sound bites, you know sixty second Instagram clips, and you know fleeting Facebook posts, you know how are you guys spreading that message? How are you educating people? How are you getting people to listen? Uh, effectively, and, and does that get tiring? Uh, I think first is I love it when people chime in uh, with those kind of comments because really I felt the way they did. You know, when, when I got out between 2006 to 2009, I felt really angry at the country, uh, everybody that we lost, all the things that had happened. I didn't really see a way out until I started doing business overseas. And then you know, it changed my perspective. It changed my mind. I learned how to really build relationship and um, there's a, it's just, you can't build a trust of a nation by invading it. Like you can't build a country at gunpoint. Um, there's a couple of lines that come in there. And I really, when I was going to these places as a businessman uh, with just nothing but a briefcase, uh, instead of a body armor and a gun, your relationship changes in a very positive manner. And we really just started building relationship with, with business owners that way. And I, I really learned to develop a, a, a much larger perspective on how we should be helping these nations, whether we like it or not, we're spending billions and or trillions of dollars in Afghanistan and to continue down the same path we have for so long and to keep losing friends and brothers and all these buddies under the same doctrine that we have been after for the past, you know, 16 years, it seems kind of stupid. And the fact that people are not open to a different course of action that costs less money, hurts less people and keeps service members at home, just kind of just, it what, crushes me. What's so the easy. definition of stupidity, right? Doing the same yeah. thing over and over and expecting a different result. I, yeah. uh, I say this to a lot of people, man, but like, I know, um, like I know John Kerry is not a well thought of person in the like conservative world, but, uh, during the end of Vietnam, when he said, you know, how do you expect the last person in a country to die for a mistake? I oftentimes look at Afghanistan and I think, you know, like, man, that's super applicable, but it's a shame that we had to treat it as a mistake because it was such a great opportunity to like to bring opportunity and humanity to a bunch of people who are really being oppressed. And instead, we've like we've wasted it by turning it into kind of a a self-licking lollipop money mill. And we validated a bunch of like, you know, stooges, a bunch of like fat cat uh, criminals that are in Afghanistan and instead of empowering the Afghani people or the Iraqi people while we were in Iraq, we've, we've instead like deepened the whole of corruption that existed before we showed up. And we, I think we've, I'm sure a lot of people will be frustrated with this comment, but I think we've ruined our, our world, the world's perspective of America and our inability to help developing nations. I would agree with that. Before going into it, you know, we, you know, we were the hope of the world. We could go somewhere and, and, and make things better. And now, you know, we've, we've seen when we touch things, typically in foreign policy, it falls apart and a lot of people die. I mean, Maybe. did you ever read the book, uh, The Ugly American? Do you, are you familiar with that book? I have not. It's um, a, I, I have heard of it. I just haven't read it. It's, a, it's an outstanding book. Like, if you, re- if you read it today, it was, it was on the reading list during the Special Forces Q courses, like a required book that you had to read. And it's, like a, it's only a couple hundred pages. It's a real kind of like you, you pick it up and you're like, oh, I don't know why this would be on the reading list. This is boring. Like, it's like tiny and it can't be consequential. But it was, uh, you, it's, it's been newly bound and it's attractive. So you pick it up and you start to read it and you're like, this is the most scorching. Um, just like commentary on American foreign policy. And you think that it's a, I mean, it, 
it was written in 1954, I think, and it's like it was written yesterday. It talks about how, you know, like, as individuals, Americans like yourself and others, like, do an amazing job impacting people that they meet every day. But as a bureaucracy, as a government, as a large-scale organization, we're so crippled by, you know, societal norms and uh, just, like, expectations that we show up places and just, like, <laughs> we kill ourselves trying to help people and make their situation absolutely worse. It, it's a great book, um, but it definitely puts into perspective that, like, since well before Vietnam was Vietnam, we as a country have had... A, a pretty poor grasp on how to do things institutionally that we as individuals seem to be doing a great job. Like you bringing small business to Afghanistan is amazing. Like, especially since you're exporting, like you're exporting products and, br and importing dollars, which is, you know, it's not an easy task. It, it's difficult and it's expensive. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, the, you know, to go on your point is, I mean, this, this data goes all the way back to, I have to even say like the civil war. Um, and one of the, one of the key, key moments for me, like getting over my, my post-service struggles was, uh, you ever seen the movie two mules for sister Sarah? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great one. Right. Great one. So he's a, well, most people like, you should watch it, but essentially he's a contractor. He's a paid hitter now and he goes and he pulls off jobs and, um, and he's, you know, going through the desert and he picks up this nun the whole way and they're escorting to the same spot. And she finds out that he used to be a soldier and, you know, comes through the, through the story and the interaction that, you know, he isn't the most patriotic human being and she's raving him up and down about the flag. And he just looks at her and he says, you know what? Everybody's got a right to be a sucker once. And, uh, <laughs> isn't and, that a, some of us for like 13 plus years, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and, and it was like that moment, like sounds kind of odd, but I was able to kind of forgive myself because you realize if that was portrayed in a movie in the sixties, and it was from knowledge back in the 1850s and 60s. Like this has been going on for a while, and the same same rhetoric has been used to put us in the same position for over a century. Like we, as as cool and as awesome as special operators think they are, like we're victim to some of those same systems that are created to to put us in those positions. And like, it's okay. Like, I think self awareness, right? Like we talked about, yeah. like uh, you know, I know. You and I have talked before about um, how, like, there's psych boarding that goes on, you know, before we get into special operations. And we've talked on this podcast about how, like, uh, sociopathic tendencies exist. Uh, or if not, if they don't just exist, they're certainly looked for to be groomed for positive effect within the special operations community. And um, it's, it's always interesting to me to see that um, one thing that's really a rare commodity is true self-awareness and that like, especially like at least in, in special forces, we have de oppressor liber as our motto, like to, you know, to free the, to free the oppressed. And, um, I'll, you know, the NCOs after, a t after several deployments usually start to sense that like the only place you can make a difference is in your immediate sphere. Like the best part about being an NCO is that, you feel like you make a real difference, but it's not like a strategy or like a global difference. You're making a difference in like the 50 people whose lives you were exposed to during that deployment and like maintaining those relationships. You know, like I'm still good friends with guys that I built relationships with in Iraq who have stayed at my house in the United States, who I still work with. Like when I go, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to going back soon so that I can just spend time with some guys that I look at as my brothers, you know? 
but it takes a long time to develop that from the dehumanizing process that the military tries to put through us. So it's like, hey, man, it's easier to shoot people that you don't see as humans. <laughs> but it's also a lot harder to change their lives for the better when you know you see them as targets instead of opportunities. I've heard a bunch of guys say that they like going to Africa the most because they're like, no one gives a shit what you do in Africa. You can actually do <laughs> some good work down there, and no one's going to get in your way because... <clears throat> Because there's, know, there's there's less natural resources. <laughs> yeah, there's no, there's no money. There's no natural resources. Like no one really gives a fuck what's going on. Um, it's kind of sad that that's what it takes for guys to feel like that's what they the environment they need to be, you know, making a difference or be be enabled to make choices to make a difference. But um, yeah, I mean, we got sidetracked there on that one, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway. By the way, this happens a lot with me. Like, welcome to the ADD, you know, miasma that is my life. Yeah. Well, let's bring it back to the center then and uh, talk a little bit more about combat flip-flops. You guys just brought out a new line of footwear, the uh, the skids. Is that right? The skids, yeah. We, we, uh, we've had a large number of requests over the years, which we typically ignored. Um, just for all, because of a lack of cash, uh, to make something without your, the thing between the toes. Mm -hmm. Uh, so we just recently were able to afford the tooling and the development time and everything else to go. And we, we've made some skids. So I dig for it, all man. you guys, I just got one. Aaron, Aaron is all about the lack of thong. <laughs> it's not that I'm all about the lack of thong. I'm actually all about the addition of the sock. <laughs> and this is because, oh, this is because when I lived in the first neighborhood I lived in in Chicago after school, uh, it was like a, I don't know, neighborhood in transition, gentrifying, whatever you want to call it, uh, older Puerto Rican neighborhood. And in the summertime, you know, a lot of the places that still didn't have air conditioning, these older, you know, two flats, like these old Puerto Rican guys would be like sitting out on the steps bullshitting. And I got to know a lot of the guys, the older guys in my neighborhood just from like walking my dog all the time. And, you know, these dudes would be sitting out there and, like, you know, these, like, polyester or, like, the nicer the nicer ones would be linen shirts. And, you know, they're black shorts, black socks, and skids. And I was like, I don't know, man. Shit grew on me. Like, it, you know, same, same way. <laughs> I, you know, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. I spent one summer working in a bike shop where all we listened to is country music one summer. Man, by the end of the summer, I had like three. Is that like on a three... dare or like? <laughs> no, it was, like... it was one of one of the brothers that ran the shop. Just loved country music, and one summer he was like, "I'm putting my foot down. That's what we're listening to." And uh, man, <laughs> 500 hours of country music later, I had like three Garth Brooks albums in my in my car. You know, but yeah, exactly, man. <laughs> right there. Um, but uh. I don't know, man. I got used to wearing black socks and skids and. I can't tell you how excited I was when you guys, you know, sent out that email and I saw, fuck yeah, I can finally put the socks back on and wear my combat flip-flops because I can't even wear shoes anymore. I've gotten so used to having my feet breathe free that every time I put shoes on, I feel like they're being, like, totally constricted. So, <laughs> even... It's it's been a great chance for Aaron to showcase his variety of 1990s rapper-themed socks, which I would like to point out, 
at this rate, we're going to be able to talk about in every podcast we have for like foreseeable future. <laughs> can Can you please start an Instagram account for his socks and those skids, please? Dude, they're amazing. He wore Tupac socks the other day that had like they were. It was Tupac was woven into the sock, and then there was a a straight up headkerchief that was like that stuck out from the tops. Like, not only was Tupac actually like in glorious artistic rendering, but he had a 3D headband on too. <laughs> those Photos are, or it didn't happen. Those, <laughs> those are special. I'll, I'll get pictures right now. I was going to wear them yesterday for the podcast, but uh, I left them outside and they got rained on. They were still a little bit wet. So he wore, so. The, he wore the biggie socks instead because he's all about promoting that East Coast, West Coast beef. That's right. <laughs> oh, man. Hey, man, you got to dig deep into the... The, the oove is that the, <laughs> <laughs> am i saying that right but, oh man um no but they're awesome man and so what's next for you guys i mean what what else is coming uh on the you know what's next for us right now is you know we're making a big big shift over to uh and just our, our whole sales model right now as you i'm sure everybody's seen it but all the consumers are going mobile they're shopping online and we're really making a dedicated effort to, to tune up our website, getting our Amazon platform rolling and serving businesses. So what we just found is that businesses and corporations that want to buy gifts for their for their for their employees or holiday things and they don't want them to be crappy tchotchkes made in Asia, um, they'll buy some stuff from us. So <laughs> we're really focused on that right now. And as far as product development comes out, we're I'll, I'll, I'll hint at it here, but you know we got some things that may not be flip flops or may not be skids and maybe a little bit more year round uh, in the can. That'll be coming out here in the next few months, which are going to be. That was the shittiest hint ever. I'm like, my mind is racing. I'm like, what could it be? The Shemags were awesome, and I was a total asshole who didn't buy the two for it, one deal. I'll be more. I'll be more clear. They go on your feet, <sighs> what? and they might have laces. What? I like it, man. Yeah. Yeah, I, like it. I might have to wear shoes. <laughs> may again. may your new venture be as amazing as those Vans tactical shoes that apparently are selling for like Jordan prices on the internet now. Have, have you been watching that shenanigans? Uh, dude, I I don't get it. Like, uh, you, you, I think all of us when we and Army hands us any piece of gear, we're like, whatever. Like, I'll put a hole in it, and I'll turn it in, I'll get a new one, and you just do it over and over and again. It's, it's awesome. Like, you were in when they had those shitty winter boots. You remember when, like, every soft unit was like, yeah, man, I really want to get, like, insert expensive boot here, and you'd use your discretionary funds to get guys these, like, approach boots or whatever. But the mm-hmm. army is like, we'll beat that. We're going to give guys cold-weather boots that are awesome, but they sucked real bad, like... You break. It took two hundred miles to break them in, and then when they were broken in, the soles fell off like the next day. <laughs> you know, like yeah. these were so uncomfortable. They're not uncomfortable. Oh shit! Now they're fucking unusable. My like, it, it's always good because you say, uh, "Well, the, these boots are good enough for me, but I wouldn't send my son to war in them," which should be like the the you know, the negative comment for the ages. Right. You well, can handle anything. So Griff, I want to hear more about you and I have talked personally. Um, you know, about the need to kind of like get off the grid and unwind and uh, and just get out, you know, essentially under the stars. I want to hear more about what you're doing, um, you know, to kind of make sure that you're, you're getting that unwind time, where you're going, how you're instilling that in your kids, um, even though it's like totally unrelated to combat flip-flops uh, in terms of just kind of on-the-surface business. Uh, it's not unrelated in the fact that I'm, I'm guessing that you need that to kind of help you stay sane and, and creative as well. Yeah. It's uh, you know, the, 
the whole mind body soul deal right and i think you guys focus on a lot of the uh, the the mind and the mindset and the body but you know the, the soul portion of it a lot of people tend to forget um in our community and i think that you know me personally after being raised in a christian religion and jewish remain in college and young adult life in islamic cultures like i I had to find like kind of my spiritual side elsewhere. And I found it to be honest out in nature. Um, you know, all those moments where you're, you're laying on your back in the middle of a field in Afghanistan and you're in the middle of the night and you're just got your nods up and you're staring at the stars and you just realize just how small and insignificant you are really puts things in perspective. And I never, really, I wouldn't say I really lost that when I came back and uh, the things that I do now to really, to really get out and I have to I focus uh, on putting this into my calendar and carving out that time because you need breaks, you need to rest. You know, and I'm sure any of your, your pro physical trainers say you can't train seven days a week and get gains. Like you have to take that time off. And so, yeah, Reco for, recovery for, is, is what? maybe the most important thing. What are steroids for the soul? <laughs> <laughs> so steroids for the soul for me are, uh, are, are elk hunting, um, bear hunting, anything with archery. You know, I got out of the army, I put down a I put down my gun. I, if I could see it, I could hit it. And I felt really guilty hunting that way. Uh, so I picked up archery hunting and that really focuses, you know, month long discipline of, to be honest, just being quiet out in the woods. Um, you know, just spend a lot of time witnessing the way things go on in nature and, and doing that. So I spend my, you know, summer and fall tracking and hunting. And then I fish salmon tournaments between, uh, between, november to march and then i go up to alaska twice a year to get on a boat and, and hang out offshore with some friends and just rip big fish off the bottom of the ocean and feed my family some nice organic meat for the rest of the year so do you have I mean, any, do you have any interest in driving to alaska in a late 70s camaro mm, that does not snow <laughs> nope. mm. that challenge was presented nope. to doug earlier just earlier today um <clears throat> cue the uh, low rent reality does it matter what show. shape the car gets there in uh right. i'm literally looking for anyone willing to die with me on the road <laughs> between north carolina and fairbanks alaska which is the new challenge the road to dushambe <laughs> are you guys gonna roll down like a new like a north american cannonball is um, that what you're gonna do i don't know if it's gonna be a cannonball when you talk about it. like i was restricted to essentially the world's shittiest car like, <laughs> it would have been worse if they'd the only way to make it worse would have been like doug you have to drive a mustang too <laughs> you're like damn right. it <laughs> Oh right. my god, it's gonna be awful though. Like, and it's it has to be in January apparently too. So it's like, uh, you know, the best time to be stranded along a, re a remote road in Canada. Right. So I, I'm one for taking risk and making really dumb adventures, but I'm I'm against this one. Just <laughs> gonna throw that one out. Why is it that every time you talk to a grounded person, they have to like bring common sense and reality into the conversation? Right. Hey, I was told there'd be a chase vehicle, and I just had to ignore <laughs> them until it was a life limber eyesight issue. This was kind of just a, <laughs> I don't know, a weird spinoff on uh, conversation of what Amish rumspring is like. And I said, <laughs> my vision was that they just handed you like a suitcase of $5,000 and like hundreds and say, a late 70s Camaro. And we're like, you don't need a suitcase come back for in that. six months and give us your decision. Did um, we go from outdoor spirituality to Alaskan cannonball to Amish rumspring? Well, you were talking about fishing in Alaska, and I was thinking to myself, this guy might be a good candidate to accompany me <laughs> right? on my trip. Hey, I just, <laughs> I just found my shotgun. Yeah, man. this this guy's got it made. <laughs> no, Unlikely. Alaska yeah. is amazing, and uh, 
honestly, you know, going back to the elk hunting, I went on my first archery elk hunt a couple years ago, and it was a soul-altering experience, I would say. Um, I mean, there isn't a week that goes by that I literally, you know, like, don't dream of hearing, like, elk bugle. Um, And, you know, the first day we got out of the truck, and it was before dawn. I was kind of, like, not really in, in my element, and, you know, the guide's, like, whispering, like, tapping me on the shoulder. He's like, look over there, look over there. And uh, this bull wasn't bugling, but, like, man, probably, like, 50 yards away, it was still really dark. You could see the silhouette of this, like, massive bull just, like, shaking the trees. And, uh, you know, I went to get my, my bow and, you know, took, like, maybe one step up towards him. I don't think he saw me, but, like, that silhouette just silently, like, disappeared into the woods. I was like, fuck, man. And from that moment and then starting to hear him bugle, it was uh, it was just game over from there. So... Hunting in the mountains is is totally different than being out here on the East Coast. And um, I'm actually going to Montana this September, and I cannot wait to get back. So yeah, it's 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 unbelievable. You know, I got a couple of my my buddies. Like one's a was a platoon sergeant at Second Battalion. Um, another one's an Army vet. And you know, I go hunting with my buddies often, where we just go like disappear into the woods for a couple of days, just hiking around and shooting shit and drinking coffee and you know trying to you know, hit grouse or rabbits or whatever in the process of hitting elk and you know all the new guys that come out there and they don't they don't really talk too much you go no no i typically hunt alone you know the, the typical soft guy i'm a loner and you're not struggling with anything and then next thing you know they start talking about how you know they they've got challenges with their kids at home and they're they're facing the same struggles you or i faced on deployments and you know and the the fact that they're able to get out there hang with guys that have been through this struggle you know, being the say like security of nature and out of cell phone and social media range is always like a good thing to get that stuff out there with your bars. So, yeah, man, yeah, I recommend it to anybody. Go elk hunting with a bow. Unplugging is when you you should have seen the absolute shame in my face when you started talking about bow. Like you're like who's like you're like elk hunting. I'm like yeah, yeah, and then you're like with a bow. I'm like damn it. <laughs> we set you up with a bow. Man. I have a I have two bows. I love them. Archery is one of my like it's amazing, and yet. I've been hunting what four times with a bow now, and I have not only not killed anything, but I haven't seen anything that was even remotely within range for me to kill. So I'm like, well, these were productive hunting trips. I should have gone to the grocery store. Hey, <laughs> it is noticeably harder, but noticeably more rewarding as well. Well, I'm certain, <clears throat> and it's warm. <laughs> it was yeah. was it the flex offender that I was wearing that really got in the way of me being able to <laughs> <laughs> spraying that in the air as you're like wind your wind direction measure. Mm. Yeah. Well, we will. I will still hunt with a rifle sometimes, um, especially when we go down to Texas to kill some pigs. But uh, yeah, yeah. The goal is definitely to use the bow if at all possible, and uh, to basically never ever ever pick up a crossbow or an airbow which seems to be like a new thing now that i totally don't understand what's an airbow it's like i don't get it either it's like an air powered like crossbow um so like you like pump it up like an old like bb gun i don't know if you pump it or it's like a co2 cartridge or whatever but so it's like a super high powered blow gun yeah can you like put fecal matter on the end of your little dart and it works better or what? Jim Shockey was like touting this thing, you know, like, <laughs> a fucking year ago, and I was like, man, why'd you have to do that? <laughs> 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 like, uh, you should have just 
you got enough trophies in the room. Like you should have held the line on this one, Jim. Hey man, let's <clears throat> let's just reinvent the wheel. It's totally new. People will buy it because it's got my name on it. Yeah, it's just not cool. Once you like, make it, you're totally free to sell out. You know, I was so yeah. impressed with. <laughs> did, you, <laughs> right? did you see uh, that his show Uncharted, Griff? No. So dude, I don't watch TV. So I knew that was coming next. Like, oh, right. the dude who just told you he likes to bow hunt for elk isn't going to totally have seen that television show. <laughs> Maybe he watches hunting shows. Um, I would recommend if you if you watch TV on your computer, um, or <laughs> or ever violate your rule of not watching TV. My name's Griff. Um, I killed my TV years ago with right? a bow. <laughs> Um, to uh, to check out Uncharted, it's pretty cool. He goes to some pretty crazy places uh, to to hunt with indigenous people, and I think that the show's actually done like a really cool, adventurous, and and pretty respectful way. So uh, I definitely think it's worth checking out. But yeah, my yeah. my goal if is for Uncharted, if you if you know him and wants to go somewhere and he's willing for somebody to carry his crap, is I want to go to Afghanistan or Kazakhstan and go go to Marco Polo. Up in the mountains. Hey man, you say that. Uh, do you do you know? Um, so do you know this guy named? Um, Cl- uh, oh my gosh, I'm gonna draw. Um, I'm having one of those TBI moments. Um, Clayton Williams. Have you ever heard of the guy before? He ran for governor in Texas in like 1980 something. I've heard his name, but I don't know him. He's a super. He's a super wild dude, man. Like he made a, f- a total fortune on oil in Texas. Like this is a, a weird segue, but you're like Marco Polo is your dream, right? So no. the only like telling story about Marco Polo's that I know is um, I got to be friends through an acquaintance with Clayton Williams and his wife. And Clayton's like a really interesting character on his own right, but his wife uh, Modesta may be one of the most like impressive women I've ever met in my life. She was in her 60s when um, the U.S. invaded Afghanistan, and she was on an on-foot, no-vehicle walking hunt for Marco Polos in Afghanistan underneath the Taliban. Like, she had actually paid passage to come into Afghanistan and go hunting for a Marco Polo, and people were like, hey, man, the U.S. is invading. You need to leave. Like, it's too dangerous for you, and she was like, I'll leave after I get my Marco Polo. (laughs) And I was like... Are you serious? Like, it's like <laughs> your sixty-year-old lady is like hunting in the mountains of Afghanistan, and you hear there's an invasion. You're like, nah, I'll just wait. I don't feel like we make people like that anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, that's awesome. That's inspiring. <laughs> I, I feel like a sissy now. Like a sixty-year-old woman went up and got one. I yeah, mean, you guys, you, you got to check out Modesta Williams. She's like uh, one of the most impressive humans I've ever met in my life. She's a real force. When they say that every great man has a great woman behind him, like I'm pretty sure that she is not behind Clayton. I think she's like shoulder to shoulder, giving him a hard time, making sure he he does the right thing. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, yeah, so. <clears throat> So we covered flip flops. Uh, Six-year-old ladies opportunity. Six-year-old ladies killing Marco Polo sheep. Uh, we we <laughs> denied the Camaro Camaro cannonball. It's, it is not denied. Um, it was just it was discouraged. I think we touched on political <laughs> ideology, maybe yeah. maybe national ideology. Yeah, uh, actually, I'm curious as that like how you feel about this. Uh, I know um, Aaron and I were talking about it in the truck earlier today about. Like where our sense of identity lies, and like how that influences our worldview. I know that um, 
you know, you're you're an entrepreneur. I don't know if you eschew that title or not. I know a lot of people that, <laughs> you know, like Brent hates it. He's like, I don't like to be called entrepreneur. I'm like, oh, then would you like to be referred to as a small businessman? Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't know what you know title you want, but um, I know that um, when we talk about the world in general, uh, we have a pretty uh, open view. Like, you know, we I think we all try to be empathetic towards our fellow man. And, um, like I see myself as like a human first. And we were talking about kind of like where our national identity falls, you know, like, are you like, at what point is being an American important to you? Or is it more important to, you know, treat other people with respect regardless of where they come from? Uh, I'm just kind of curious as like with all of the, you know, populism, like I said, Aaron fell back to that immediately. We were talking and he was like, you know, I think he correlated nationalism with populism, and I don't. I don't necessarily think that's a requirement that you. Uh, I wouldn't say that it's a requirement. I would just say that there is a strong correlation there. Yeah, fair they're, enough. They're often found together, but I don't think they're one and the same, and I don't think it's a requirement. So, what are your feelings on patriotism <laughs> and its influence on how <laughs> we see uh, other humans? <laughs> um, I think that. Because of our experiences, we, I think we've traveled more than most. And when people, when people talk about globalization, it, it's a real thing. You know, 150, 200 years ago, it was okay to say, I hate those guys and I'm going to send the Navy and pillage and plunder their nation because, you know, they believe a different religion than me. Is that a but now we've got Theodore Roosevelt. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> probably, yeah. And 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 now, like, we understand foreign cultures down to their genetic history, down to their chromosomes, down to their code. Like we understand humans at, at that level now. The world is round. We're all working together. We all see the trade routes. We're like the dollar signs are there. All the data is there. And it, to be honest, it's in your pocket. Um, so the, we have to see America as a, as a global player. It's not just us versus the world. One of my favorite, uh, favorite things to just harp on people about is anytime somebody says third world country, I lose my fucking shit. Yep. I lose it because you know why? Because like when I was in the military, I got in the back of a plane and I flew there in like 15 hours and I still do it today. It's this world. We're in it together. And the only way we're all going to move forward is if we all do it together. Are you equally um, averse to a sub equatorial two thirds? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so the, the, the way that I look at it is patriotism and nationalism and populism is, is I really want our country to be leaders. That's all that I want. Um, our, our world is destined for one of two paths. Either we're going to go the way of Star Trek where, we all kind of figure it out. We work together and we, you know, we, we embrace technology and we all move forward. And we figure out a way to feed each other and not kill each other over dumbass shit. Or we go the route of Mad Max, right? Either way. We're, it's, it's one we're or the other. We were just talking about the Captain Kirk uh, <laughs> <clears throat> mentality earlier. So. Yeah. yeah. And so the, you know, like, I'll be honest, like my family and I, we're good either way. Like, I've lived the Mad Max world. Like all of us have been there in Afghanistan. We understand like if Mad Max were to made into a real life movie today, it would probably exist somewhere in between Pakistan and Iran. And we've done it. We've thrived there. We've been successful. Like, so we can work in that world. Um, but I would prefer that we go the Star Trek method and then we use the assets and the resources that are available to us to lead the world in that direction. I'm, like glad, so. I'm glad we're sitting in, underneath a table right now because I don't want Brooke to see how tight my pants got based on your <laughs> response. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's the whole line. is like, uh, I don't know, like, but uh, Evan from 30 Seconds Out, you guys should interview him, but he's got that patch, and I'm sure we've seen it around, but it says no one else is coming. Yep. It's off yep. to us. You know, we've 
we got the bona fides, we got the street cred, we got the training, you know, we got the team, we got the network. Nobody's going to do it. We've, we're all looking at our nation's leadership and look at what they're doing. Right. Oh my God. It's going to, it's going to, it's going to be us that does it. <laughs> yeah. You, you look at the guys from, from world war two and they came back and like those guys shot Nazis and Japs for years and they didn't even come home. Right. They, they, they fought it out. They duked it out. When they came back, you didn't hear shit from this country between 1946 and 1953. Well, cause they got to they work, started, man. Yeah. They, they were coming back. They were licking their wounds. They were like figuring out their network. They were putting things in their communities and all of a sudden, boom, they released the Corvette. Right. And then they started shooting dudes in outer space and through a bunch of very network guys that have put in the time and the effort, they became what was known as the greatest generation. Man, there's like, so much that I would love to add to that. Yeah. So, it's, so like, it's a, especially with like a sociologist <clears throat> wife, these are conversations here <clears throat> and I have all the time, like, oh, the good yeah. old days, this you know? Is, this starts the seven hour podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, does this, does this allow us to talk about how the greatest generation failed the baby boomers or like what? <laughs> no, I wasn't even yeah, going to that. Even, but. Yeah, but I mean, we're, we're yeah, they, they did fail the baby, baby boomers. Like, and we know that. Yeah. Are we going to make those same mistakes? Are we going to come out swinging? And that's the part that just gets me about like veterans today, especially, Oh, dysfunctional this or that. And like, Hey man, like PTSD, I call it PTSO. P- like it's post-traumatic stress. It's in order. They've been doing the studies since the civil war. They know what happens to the guys after conflict. They know how it affects them mentally and physically and emotionally. And they know what's, what, what needs to be done to recover. And we just need to do that right now. And then in like four or five years, just come out swinging. I'm with that's, you, man. That's all we need to do, dude. I mean, that's, like that's, that's what needs to happen. Some really no good excuses. focus on that stuff, man. I, I mean, I, I think that, uh, I think our, our, in, our worst enemy there is ourselves and guys uh, admitting that they need to do what they need to do to, to fix themselves. You know, mm-hmm. like Agreed. I don't have a problem, Griff. You have a problem. Fine. I don't have a problem. <laughs> now <laughs> I'm gonna go drink this bottle of booze and feel sorry for myself. Well, you go do good things, and I'm going to hold it against you. (laughs) (laughs) Man, Man. you just pulled out my entire social media month. (laughs) I do not want to end the podcast on that note. Yes. (laughs) I think it's a great way to end it. We will not end up. No. This would be way better if yeah. I was wearing my unicorn onesie when I said that. <laughs> right. Then then maybe I would find it acceptable if we could take like a picture somehow. But no, man, I think, uh, Griff, it's honestly super refreshing to talk to you and, you know, to hear your opinions and your worldview, which is, you know, super well formed. Uh, you're very eloquently putting all of your thoughts together, which is fantastic as well. And, uh, you know, my only regret is that we don't get to have these conversations more frequently. So yeah, yeah. I need to find a way to move you over here so we can like bro out more. Oh, yeah, bro crush magnified. <laughs> you guys need to move out to Washington. How about that? Well, don't say to that Seattle. too loud. Hopefully, my wife doesn't listen to this podcast because she's like, I think I would really like Portland. I'm like, oh god. And my Brian, oh, our sound would... guy, is like rolling his eyes, like, of course she would like Portland. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe if we can come yeah. visit uh zach sometime i know he and he and chris the two wonder twins are going to be doing some pretty amazing things out in europe but when they get back maybe we'll uh try and plan like a west coast tour It'd be great to stop yeah. in and say hello yeah we need to do like a softly ski and shooting trip and do like a james bond 
kind of remake, you know, if we'll put like you know, Zach on skis and we'll all get in white outfits and Uzis and we'll chase him down a mountain and he'll jump off a cliff. So I like enthusiastic it, nodding from <laughs> our right? end. Get the, the speed <laughs> Speaking of which, Griff, are you going to come join us in Texas at the hog hunt this year? Uh, when is it? Mid-February. Ooh, you don't have I to. Should be able to make. No, I should be able to make that this year. All right, 14th through the 18th. You can wear a loincloth and carry a sheath knife. Yeah, an atlatl. <laughs> 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 I like it. Well, I'll follow up with you more details. Um, hopefully, we can have you down. It's uh, Doug can tell you it's like one of the best events that we do every year. Even though it sounds like on paper, it's not that cool. Somehow, it ends up being pretty Dude, amazing. I, uh, I, I'm. I'm first of all, I'm super in awe of your like Zen and your ability to identify that you needed some time to reset. I am like a do everything all over the place kind of dude. Uh, I was just telling Aaron like August is a nightmare for me, <laughs> but uh, Aaron completely guilted me. Like he didn't guilt me. He just invited me to the hog hunt and I said yes. And then realized I'd triple booked that entire time period. But because Aaron had already gotten me a plane ticket, I was like, damn it, I'm going to this hog hunt. And the whole week leading up to it, I was like, all this other stuff that I'm missing sucks so bad. And um, then I got there, got off the plane, and the next four days were like a big wake-up call to me. Like, hey, man, I absolutely needed this time with guys to reset, you know? Yeah. It was great. Did you guys... Did you did you kill the turkey? Was that you? No, I'm uh, not. I'm official, not a, officially, that I'm never happened. Poacher, like I don't know what you're saying. Uh, that was not Doug, but it also did not happen. I did break down a deer with a 300 wind mag, though. So she never saw it coming. It was the freight train that broke across both shoulder blades. Doug definitely got the over the top award. <laughs> Look, man, I was told late in the game that I couldn't bring a 556 five, gun and I didn't own a 30 caliber rifle, so I went and checked this uh freaking XM2010 out of the arms room. And so I showed up with like a $30,000 sniper rifle in a government case and was like like barely fit in the box blind. <laughs> <laughs> this this thing will be good, right? <laughs> and it was. It was real good. Hey, did the trick, that's for sure. Well, Griff, thanks that's again amazing. for joining us. I know you got to go. Um, we loved having you on here, and we always enjoy talking to you. Hopefully, we can do it again soon. And uh, yeah, man, keep kicking ass, and we can't wait to see what else comes next from Combat Flip Flops. All right, later, guys. Hey, thanks later, Griff. Later. Peace.